0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: We'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we work and record this program, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and the Turbal and Jagera people.
0: We pay our respects to their elders past and present and we extend our respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples.
1: Communal singing, whether you do it in a choir or with a bunch of friends, is one of those great pleasures in life that not so many of us indulge in these days, not since we've retreated into our digital home entertainment caves. Singing together is joyful, it brings people together and gets you out of your own head for a while as you become part of a greater whole, making a great big lovely noise together. It's a simple idea and a big one. But in some places, communal singing goes deeper still, much deeper. This is what Genevieve Campbell discovered when she came to the Tiwi Islands off the coast of Darwin. Genevieve is a conservatorium trained musician. She's been educated in the traditions and structures of Western music. And when she was introduced to the music of the singing ladies of Tiwi Islands, it made her hair stand on end. Genevieve Campbell's been working with the senior songwomen of the Tiwis for many, many years now. And it's completely changed her ideas of what music is and what it's for. And she's been shown how a song can hold an eternity inside of it. Together, Genevieve and the senior songwomen of the Tiwis have written a book called Merle La Songs and Stories of the Tiwi Islands. Hi, Genevieve.
0: Poponu Tapanari Montani.
1: Oh, lovely. What does that mean? Hi, Richard. (laughs) (laughs) That music we've just heard, the song itself is called Mulila. Tell me about this song. What is it?
0: Well, Mulila is one of the love songs that the women who are in this book remember hearing when they were young, they remember hearing the old ladies across the water at Paru from the island that they were on singing these love songs. And so the Mulila songs, as they now call them, were the love songs that women would sing together for entertainment, for fun. Some of them are a bit naughty, some of them are, you know, longing and, and you know, lost love or, or love one shouldn't have. And the Mulila songs have developed over the last 50 years to become uh, the songs that they are now. Mulila itself actually means, hey, you and me, let's go, let's be together, let's go together.
1: And is it okay to share that song? I Absolutely. mean, or it's not a private song then?
0: No, no, it's not a private song. the The actual love songs from the past were, and a few of those have been recorded over the years, and we we don't share those. The the women listen to them amongst themselves, but Molila was their way of saying, let's all come together, you and me, let's all come together.
1: Like I said, you had a musical education and you were trained in the tenor horn, which is a brass instrument, which, weirdly, you know, I've had a music education, I've never heard of the tenor oh. horn before, what, where does it sit in the family of brass instruments?
0: Uh, it's like a baby tuba.
1: Between a French so, horn and a tuba, something like that?
0: It's at the same pitch as a French horn, well a French horn's in F and a tenor horn is in E flat but you hold it upright like it looks like a tuba, but it's about a quarter of the size of a tuba, I suppose. So the tenor horn and then the baritone and then the euphonium and then the tuba. It's the baby in that family.
1: Still, it's a large instrument and it's a commitment to lug it round from place to place as opposed to a violin or a trumpet or something. You must love it. Why did you love it?
0: Short answer is I wanted to be in the then Waverley Bondi Beach Brass Band because my dad was in it and he would chuff off to band on Friday nights and Sunday mornings and, um, you know, when I was 10 or 11, I suppose I must have been, dad then announced that I was old enough to go along as well. So tenor horn is what I was given, so that's what I played.
1: And what did you love about the sound of it?
0: Well, I was particularly in love with the French horn, I have to say, but Mm. French horns don't exist in a brass band, so (laughs) I think that's why I was given a tenor horn. Mum and dad used to take me to SSO concerts and French horns just look fantastic, sitting up the back like that, pointing in the wrong direction somehow. The fact that they bounce off the back wall and then you hear this wonderful, mellifluous, sort of dark honey kind of sound. I just loved French horns.
1: There's a theory that rock and roll comes out of the mixing of African traditions and the brass band music of the 19th century, you know, uh Seuss's music and all that, that kind of big riotous noise that a brass band makes when it's playing particularly well is, is kind of great, actually. Is, did you love that?
0: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I still love brass bands. Um, When I can go in and join as an alumni with the Bondi Beach Brass, I do. And, I mean, one of the things back then for me was that it was... It was a gang, it was a club, it was a, a leveller and people of all shapes and sizes and from all walks of life were in the Waverley Band and they were all instant friends because of the music we played together and I was immediately part of that. Even though I was 10, the whole band would stop for me to play my two notes that I was <laughs> able to play <laughs> and I played with them straight away in concerts. You know, I was I was allowed to be part of it.
1: So how about your mum? Was she musical as well?
0: Again, amateur musical. So um, my mum was a teacher librarian in, in primary schools. And so she was a storyteller, really. And she joined the Waverley Band as well. She was told by her doctor that her lung capacity would be improved. if She played an instrument. She'd been sick, she'd had some pneumonia. And um, and so she actually played clarinet. Because but...
1: oh, you really got to blow into that thing, don't exactly. you? Exactly. And yeah. it was a good
0: thing for her to sort of muscle strength and things. And Cliffwood Child, principal tuba of the SSO for many, many years and he conducted the Waverley Band and he said to Mum, come along, clarinet, that's fine. So Mum would play the clarinet in this brass band.
1: And how lovely was it playing music with both your parents, the three of you?
0: I don't think I ever consciously thought about it. It was just so much my life. It was just what we did and certainly thinking back, I feel like I was very lucky to have had that. Certainly, you know, later when my, my dad got ill and the band all came and played outside his his house for him to hear when he was upstairs in bed and that sort of unquestioning sort of long-term connection people have having having played music together, I think I I, I was always conscious of that for sure.
1: How much of an influence was your dad on you growing up?
0: A big one, I'd say. Dad being the passionate, fairly melodramatic sort of musician and, and love of music, there was always, the record player was always on with, you know, Strauss playing very loud or Mahler playing very loud in the lounge room. It sort of certainly normalised feeling passionate about music in my childhood for sure.
1: So you studied at the Conservatorium and you started playing professionally as a musician. Tell me how it was that you became introduced to the singing music of the women of the Tiwi Islands.
0: Oh, well, it was a long time in. So I actually went to Sydney Uni. I'm old enough that back when I did Bachelor of Music, it wasn't at the Con, it was at Sydney Uni um, up on main campus there. And very quickly I started doing music theatre. So I, I was only in first year uni and I was playing on Les Mis and then, then I went on to Phantom of the Opera and then I did, you know, Miss Saigon and, and West Side Story. And, you know, I was, I was absolutely a gun-for-hire freelance musician. And it wasn't until 2006 when we happened to have a, a family friend who was a pharmacist who was at the time working for the Northern Territory Government as a, as a fly-in, fly-out sort of pharmacist in remote communities. And he was with us for Christmas and he had just been up north and he'd just been on the Tiwi Islands and he happened to have a recording that he'd made of the old ladies singing. I don't know whether it was, you know, a couple of champagnes on Christmas Day afternoon or it was a moment in my life where I just heard this sound of the ladies and it just really got me inside somehow
1: i think these things are always a bit mysterious particularly given that you didn't have any concept of tiwi island culture at that point what do you think you heard and why do you think it affected you
0: i think i heard and i still hear this hasn't changed actually what i heard was the the whole of the of the group as a as a choir i'm loath to call them a choir because they don't call themselves that but within that hole, I absolutely heard all the individual voices. There was no attempt or indeed need to homogenise. So hearing the personalities of all of the voices is very different to my classical training where we all try to play as a homogenous whole. where yeah. no one wants to stick out. So that really did strike
1: me. And in fact, that's the point of a choir, in a way, is to lose yourself in the whole, isn't absolutely. it? Absolutely,
0: absolutely. To become
1: a component that's not perceptible—that's you're just you're part of this. The the boundaries blur, mm. but this is different.
0: Absolutely, and you can hear the lead voice, if you like, shifts around the room, almost like there are lots of speakers, and the particular women who are the holder of that song will lead, and so everybody else follows at a imperceptibly small smidgen of time behind.
1: But you didn't know that then? Oh, no. no you didn't no, know it any of that? Yep. So what did you heard something there that you couldn't understand at that point?
0: To be honest, I didn't know where the Tiwi Islands were at that point and I have to admit I knew nothing about Aboriginal music at all and so I hadn't really thought either about, you know, micro tonalities or shifting metres or shifting time or anything um, and so that really was a sort of mind-blown moment musically for sure. And it's taken me a very long time to sort of work out what all that means.
1: And it breaks breaks all the rules of Western music in that sense. or breaks so many of them in any case. Mm. So you made the decision to go to the Tiwi Islands wherever they were. (laughs) (laughs) So what does that mean? you got to fly to Darwin and then get a boat or something or or a slight aircraft or something? Yeah, well,
0: yeah, they're, they're your options. You fly to Darwin, which is about four and a half hours from Sydney, and then... Generally can't do it in the same day because they don't match up. You can either get a two and a half hour ferry trip, which only runs three times a week, or there's a small plane. It's sort of as big as however many people buy a ticket. So sometimes you'll get on the plane and it's a five seater, and sometimes it's a twelve seater. So yeah, I went up there. I did preempt my arrival by contacting Teresita Porrentano Mary, who was uh, the then uh, leader of the Strong Women's Group, who I had. Found out that she was the woman I needed to find.
1: Right, so you didn't just show up and say, Take me to the singing ladies. Well, it kind of was. I mean, I, I
0: did sort of literally show up at the airstrip. And, like, there's no bus or, you know, taxi service or anything like that. So I showed up and I hung around for a good kind of, I don't know, 20 minutes until someone felt sorry for me and drove me <laughs> to town. And I did literally say, where's the strong women's group? Where will I find them?
1: The top end is pretty intoxicating. You know you're there straight away. You go, wow, this is different. If you've lived elsewhere or in the rest of Australia, the, the air is humid, everything smells amazing. Of course, you're much, much closer to Asia. Were you struck by that?
0: I mean, I'm absolutely an inner city, Sydney muso-type person. I had been to Darwin before. As a early young teenager, my mum and dad had taken me on sort of coach trips and we'd been to Uluru and we'd been to Alice Springs and we'd been to Kakadu but, you know, very much a tourist sort of thing and as a kid. Um, so I certainly didn't know what to expect in terms of the Tiwi Islands. I guess like everybody I sort of presumed it was going to be palm trees and a bit sort of Fiji-ish but it's very much Australian scrub and, and eucalypts and, and mangroves and all that.
1: So someone took pity at the airstrip and gave you a lift into mm. the town mm. and how did you find the singing ladies at that point?
0: I headed to the Women's Centre, which is where someone had said that is probably where they would be, and there were probably 15 women in their sort of 60s and 70s sitting around weaving, and I just sat down and said, hello, where's Teresita? Who's Teresita? And Teresita came over and said hello to me and I said, I'm Genevieve and I'm the one who sent you a letter because it was, you know, I had to send a letter back then to post it to her and she and her husband, Barry, who were both on the local land council, had sort of been the first people to sort of, you know, give me a permit. And so I just sat down and started talking to them.
1: (laughs) That's what it was to begin with. Mm. How then did you build up your relationship with them and get to hear them sing?
0: Well, more sitting down and listening and being. I mean, time really. Um, I have to say the women were extremely welcoming and friendly right from the start. And I think maybe because I showed up as a individual with no agenda, I didn't work for anyone, I wasn't from an organization. You know, I didn't have a staff shirt on or anything. Right,
1: you weren't some part of arts initiative or anything. Yeah, exactly. Like that. I had yeah. I
0: had no I had no goal. There was no reason for me to be there except that. I mean, it sounds really gushy now that I say it out loud, but it, it, I really did just sort of want to meet them and hear them. And 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 the thing is, it, it was pretty easy. I mean, I, I certainly um, lucked on an amazing bunch of women in terms of um, having that experience because they sing all the time. I mean, not. Performance. They they sing as they weave, and singing they go in and out of singing all the time. So they really were literally singing that very first day.
1: And what was it like to sit next to them as you as this the singing came from them? Um,
0: a, a, I guess a kind of combination of being extremely moved by musically by what I was hearing, and then my kind of. Analytical brain, I suppose, was fascinated by what I was hearing and trying to work out what they were doing. Because straight away, I—or not straight away, but you know, maybe the second or third day—I realised that there was a almost polyphony, but not quite. There was a sort of a a unison polyphony going on. But the, the the overwhelming sort of feeling was just how lovely they were and how welcoming they were, and how immediately there was no no one was asking me who I was or what I was doing or anything. I was just allowed to be there, and so I just really enjoyed sitting in that group of, the, like a warm hug of of, of old ladies. <laughs> it's a funny way of putting it. So this it's...
1: group of senior women, they, they were known as the Strong Women's Group. Tell me a bit about them and, and their relationship to each other.
0: The strong Strong Women's Group is a is a term of respect that's that's given to a particular group, and, and it's a shifting group of women, of course. Um, it's a, the particular age group of women who are the the keepers of the knowledge, the the current holders of of the knowledge. So in the community, they're seen as they're, they're sort of the mentors, they're the the problem solvers. and with with the the men, um the senior men and the but the strong women's group, strong women is is particularly a thing that that is what the 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 women are called they have since become the singing women over like over the last or well, they were always the singing women, but Over the last sort of decade, I suppose, of us performing together, they've become Narukurawala, which is their sort of stage name, I suppose. Um, But their identity as strong women comes first.
1: Did you bring your horn with you, I have to ask?
0: That first day? Absolutely I did, yes.
1: (laughs) What did they make of that? It's a very Uh, different kind of noise, isn't it?
0: (laughs) Yeah. One old lady, Leonie, um, literally (laughs) stuck her fingers in her ears um, and went, you know, poo, what's that noise kind of thing? Because, you know, completely out of... I mean, I don't know why I took my horn, to be honest. It was a pretty funny thing to do, but I don't know. For me, that was my way of making music, so I took it with me. And I guess I had vague ideas of making music with them, but <laughs> by the end of the, that first sort of week I was there, I was very sheepishly sort of playing along underneath what they were doing. Um, and what did and-
1: they make of you playing horn? Did they, it sounds like they felt a bit sorry for you playing the horn.
0: A little bit, yeah. We've I mean, we've had lots of discussions over the years about this, about the need for some cultures to put something between them and the music they're making. Tiwi mob don't have any instrument. There's no yidaki. There's no there's no didgeridoo, and in fact, there's no actual word for music. The only word that there is is singing, because that's the way Tiwi people express music, and and vocally is the way they. Tell the stories and the way they record all of their culture.
1: So singing is primary,
0: Absolutely. primary,
1: and playing an instrument of, it will, will necessarily be a secondary thing in their, in their eyes.
0: Yes. So m- mujiki, which is a which is an English loan word, is used now to refer to music on the radio or guitar music sort of thing. But there are also no words for song, interestingly, either, because all the words that that are about songs are actually story, story or knowledge. They're the they're the words that mean song.
1: What kind of stories and what kind of knowledge are embedded in those songs?
0: All of the deep past ancestral knowledge. So all of the song lines that traverse the islands, all of the old pre-human stories about the cre- in the, from the creation period about when all of the people, if you like, were, were animals and birds. All Tiwi people are descendants of those first beings, and they form all of the skin groups and all of the country identity groups, so the patrilineal groups and the matrilineal groups are all descended from those first beings. And so the songs tell those stories and from way back then there were songs about particular birds who taught people, how to hold ceremony, and they're all passed down through the songs.
1: Are they stories and are they told like stories? Are the words of them given out like, this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then that happened?
0: No, quite the opposite. All Tiwi songs are in the present tense. So that is happening now. If someone was singing the Crocodile Ancestral story song, it is, I am crocodile, I am wading through the mangroves, I am hiding in the shallows. Every time someone sings their kinship crocodile song, they are manifesting that first storyteller. So they are the current teller of that story. And in that moment, as they're singing, they are the crocodile ancestor themselves.
1: It's a kind of a mythology, but it's not, is it? Because all of our mythologies in Western culture, begin with once upon a time, a long time ago, it's all in the past tense and then I did, I said, she said, he said, da-da-da-da-da. What do you make of that difference?
0: Yeah, well, yeah, they're they're not fables in that way. They're not legends. Um, There's the story of Purukopali... And uh, Weye and Dapara, who who were the the first, almost like the Adam and Eve story, I suppose. Porokapali and Waie, who were the first man and woman, and that is told in the past. That is the one story, and interestingly, that's that's very rarely sung. That's actually a narrative that's spoken mo- most often, and it is the story that tells of mortality having come to the world. But that's really the only one that is a fable, if you like. But it's reality. It's still re- reality. It's not told as a fairy story. Well, I've listened to. Uh, what did I work out about 1,400 unique songs amongst the archive, and none of them are in past tense. They're all in present tense, and overwhelmingly they are also in first person. So the person who sings is the subject of the song. How fixed
1: are these songs? Do they sort of stay in place and remain immutable and passed down like a lot of oral traditions are really keen on getting, having word for word traditions passed down when it's spoken? Is it like that with the music? Are they very fixed?
0: Not at all, quite the opposite. So it's not really the dumb thing to sing someone else's song. The story is passed down, but the knowledge being in your head as the current singer of that song means that you then present your sort of your version, I suppose, but your telling of that song. So it's almost like um there, if you think of jazz standards like, you know, say Fly Me to the Moon or something, which every time it's sung, you recognize it as Fly Me to the Moon. But, you know, Aretha Franklin might have scattered a bit around it or changed the
1: tempo. Yeah, yeah. that's
0: right. Or a jazz mu- museo might throw in little different motives and things like that. The Tiwi singer is doing that. So there's a there's sort of a, a standard story not a standard text even but but there are particular poetic devices and a partic- particular phrases if you like and particular words that tend to always be part of say that crocodile song but every time it's sung the words will be slightly different because you'll you'll describe you'll describe the action in your own way is the best way of putting it.
1: Is there someone leading the singing?
0: Yes, so in a group and in the in the women's group, for instance, I'll stick with Crocodile, say. So Regina, who's one of the ladies, is Crocodile Woman. So if they were going to be performing Crocodile, the women who are Jungle Fowl and Shark and Magpie Goose, they can sing the Crocodile Song as well. It's not sort of restricted. But Regina's the, the Crocodile Woman, so she will lead it. And this has driven me crazy over the years too, where she will sing it slightly differently to a way that uh, another Crocodile Woman would have sang it you know, yesterday when we were rehearsing, say. So she will tell the crocodile story and most of the words are basically the same because, like I said, there are, and there are also a lot of ancestral words that are now no longer part of the spoken language. Correct
1: me if I'm wrong, but I'm getting the impression that these each of these women have, like, a library in their heads which has stories and information about the creation of the world, their ancestry, who is who and the land itself. Is that right?
0: It's absolutely right. And it's phenomenal.
1: And you can like put, these women can put like a hand to a book just like that in their own minds. In
0: their absolutely. Own right. Oh, yes. Songs come out all the time. Stories come out through songs all the time. Um, and I think it's Regina who said something to me, something like, we don't write things down like you, Mob. Our songs are our history books and and our library and 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 also it's you know it's it's the almanac. I mean, there you know there are songs there are songs about particular birds who arrive at particular part times of the year, which of course we know now are sort of heralding the change of seasons, or warning of storms, or telling of particular uh, grasses that are going to be going into seed, which is then itself the the trigger to start preparing for a particular oh. ceremony. So and they are all in the songs, and there are songs about particular areas that the ladies are always singing when we go out hunting the the ladies are always singing um the songs that go with those particular places so So around around the waterhole it's a map
1: and an almanac and all those things as well
0: absolutely absolutely and they sing to each other so they don't get lost as well how
1: long did you spend with these women before you thought you might perform with them on stage and bring them to darwin
0: it actually happened very quickly. I think I think because the women were so sort of such movers and shakers right from the start. Like you know, within within a couple of months, I'd I'd come, gone back to Sydney and then I my brain was sort of you know ticking away about what we might be able to do together and you know these these women are fantastic and what can I do and I'd actually been working in a jazz project which I'd never done jazz before and, and jazz groups sort of seemed at the time to. Marry quite well because of the extemporized way of uh, that I had already worked out is what the what the we mul were doing, and so I got back in touch with Teresita via the fax machine actually at the Women's Centre because she was working there at the time, and Darwin Festival was a sort of a beacon you know event up there, and so she and I went into the Darwin Festival office, and basically talked the wonderful Anne Dunn, who at the time was the director of the Darwin Festival into producing us Sight Unseen. So the, the basically the idea was, you know, a um, bunch of old ladies sitting in a room with a bunch of jazz musos from Sydney and we'd have three days together and we'd sort of see what happened. And that's then Darwin Festival said, yep, that sounds like a great idea, so that's what we did.
1: And how did it come together?
0: Uh, loosely, chaotically and wonderfully. It was. I mean, it was amazing. It was because the women were in charge all the time, of course, because they... You know, especially thinking back, I mean, I had no idea what I was doing because I didn't know, I didn't recognise any of the songs at that stage, I didn't know them well enough, I obviously didn't know the language... But the women absolutely do. So. And were they a
1: bit weirded out about the whole idea of performing for the enjoyment of an audience rather than just for themselves and for cultural reasons?
0: No, I don't think so. Because They
1: enjoy it. I mean, getting applause. I oh, mean yeah. thunderous applause. Oh, and...
0: absolutely, absolutely. I mean, that very first concert at Darwin Festival was a very loved-up crowd. I mean, you know, although Darwin's not the Tiwis, a lot of Tiwi mob Melbourne come across for it. And, you know, it was sold out and it was they were absolutely stars, rock stars. But the ladies do have a history of performing for their own community. They've been in quite a conscious sort of aim of maintaining culture and passing it on to their children. They have quite consciously been reinventing the very old songs in new ways to engage children. So, you know, well before I met them, they had certainly been singing to local audiences. You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more Conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations.
1: Hearing their music and the way they sing, I can hear a little bit of Western influence in the background there. Does that come from the songs of Christian missionaries who've come to the Tiwi Islands?
0: Yes, it does. So these old ladies in particular grew up in the Catholic mission on Bathurst Island and they were taught to sing in two-part harmony, and mainly singing hymns, and uh, they were also taught to play the guitar. They still follow that musical structure, although they have absolutely morphed it into language. Uh, the women still sing hymns. There's still mass on the island that not, not very many people go to, but the people who go do still sing hymns, but always in language, always in Tiwi language. But the women have really uh, harnessed that style of music in order to engage young younger people, and they call them their modern modern songs. Although on the face of it they sound like two-part harmony, choral, guitar-accompanied songs, if you start listening to them you'll actually hear that there's a rhythmic and a structural asymmetry.
1: Now, there's an edge to the harmonies too because, you know, in Western music the major chord harmonies, the harmonies are based on what you call the first, the third and the fifth, as you well know, mm. da, 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 up, climbing up and down there they sort of. It's a bit different with them. They've they've got a different idea of how the harmony should work. What have you noticed there, Jennifer?
0: Well, I think what they're doing is singing the way they do in ceremony. So singing what what I call the, the classical Tuwe singing, which is not based on Western tonal harmonies at all, and which has a lot of microtonality in it. And what do a you lot mean by of, that? What? Well, microtones are rather than la, la, it's la. Like right, the space between slightly, two notes yeah, in slightly, the Western scale. Yeah, as you right. can tell, I can't sing. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um,
0: not quite a semitone, right. but definitely uh, not not singing out of tune. It's a conscious fluctuation of pitch, but it's not quite what we would call a semitone or a tone. The ladies always do that at particular points in a phrase that match that particular point in a phrase that they would do if when they were singing in ceremony.
1: So it signals something. And are the songs like conversations? Are they talking to one another as their counterpoint?
0: It's more so. In fact, I think a conversation between either the ancestral being of you know if it's jungle fowl or of the ancestor who is you know a great great grandfather who whose story they're telling. That great grandfather is the voice because the subject matter is is in, the, is in their first-person voice. So the conversation is also being had between the lead singer who is the manifestation of that ancestor and the rest of the women who are singing his or her story.
1: So the ancestor momentarily comes to life. So this brings me to these recordings you found in Canberra, these very old recordings. Tell me how you found them and what you heard on them.
0: Well, we discovered the recordings sort of semi by accident. I mean, it all sounds like I've just been flopping around following the ladies, which is sort of true. One thing leads to another, you know, truly that's how it's always worked. That very first Darwin Festival concert, we were rehearsing at Charles Darwin University. I'd sort of wangled my way into some free rehearsal space by sort of talking up the fact that it would be a great experience for the music students to observe a rehearsal and, you know, jazz students came in to observe what we were doing. just so happened that There was a symposium on at the time at CDU for the National Recording Project for Indigenous Song and Dance in Australia, which I'd never heard of. And we were rehearsing and just working out what we were going to do. And a gentleman by the name of Alan Marrett stuck his head in the door and said, Hello, who are you? What are you doing? Weirdly, he had been my ethnomusicology teacher back in university. I hadn't seen him for 17 years. He had subsequently become a leading. Researcher in Aboriginal Australian music. And at the time, the National Recording Project were wanting to include Tiwi Song Culture and they hadn't been able to make any contact.
1: And there you were. There suddenly. we were, on a plate
0: yeah. next to them, exactly. And so we talked and he said y- um, you should investigate and see if there are any archive recordings, which I hadn't really thought of doing that. But I had started asking the the women and the senior song men where does this song come from, and who you know who is the composer? Silly kind of white person questions. Now that I realise it, especially because we had to register the first few recordings we made with APRA for royalties and to make sure that the women got any royalties out of it. Suddenly and you have there's... to nominate
1: a composer, don't you? Absolutely, and you can't.
0: Can of worms. You can't. There is no one composer. We've since tried um, nominating a group, you know, the strong women's group as the composer or a particular country group as the composer. And that's, it's, um yeah, square peg round hole. It doesn't really work. But, you know, there, there are ways of working around that. And 16 years later, we're, we're sort of doing it um, quite well these days. But um so, yeah, so I did a Google search and realised that there was a large collection of Recorded material in IATSIS, the Australian Institute for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies. And how
1: old were these recordings?
0: The earliest were made in 1912, which are amongst the oldest recordings of Aboriginal music. What, like a wax cylinder
1: or something back in those
0: days? Yeah, literally a wax cylinder. So someone
1: brought a wax cylinder recorder over to the Mm, Tiwi Islands in mm. those days. And what happened when you found those recordings?
0: Well, at first when we found them, we had to work out how to listen to them because they were wrapped in a million miles of red tape and there was we we hit a... But they hadn't been digitised or anything? No, no, nothing had been digitised. Some of it had... I think most of it had been transferred to cassette tapes sometime in the 70s, but none of it was digitised and none of it, in fact, could be digitised until cultural authority had been given by Tiwi elders. And so that's when we very quickly struck a catch-22. So it couldn't be digitised until the elders had given authority but the elders couldn't give authority until Until they they heard heard it (laughs) (laughs) and we couldn't physically find a way of doing that and so I wrote letters to anyone I could think of saying this is outrageous and I ended up getting funding to take 11 elders to Canberra and we spent a week in Canberra, that was in 2009.
1: So what happened when you took them into the Institute and, and were able to play them these recordings? How did they respond?
0: it's sort of hard to put in words the, the the immenseness of that moment especially when you consider that Tiwi's songs are in first person present tense so when these voices came out of the of the speakers i was hearing really interesting old songs but the women and 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 men were hearing voices who were again alive so they are they exist again when they sing and so, and they, they were also hearing, of course, family members. So uh, I can
1: recognize the voices of great grandparents, it would have been.
0: Yeah, I mean, there are, there are lots of really interesting, passed on vocal techniques. So, uh, motifically, there are particular senior song men who have passed down vocal. And they could identify that, hearing that in these
1: recordings that are a century old? Mm.
0: And so it became a bit of a detective project, I suppose, because most of the stuff hadn't been very well catalogued at all. So, you know, none of the singers, or very few of the singers, I should say, were named. And and, and how emotional was that
1: for people to hear their ancestors singing?
0: Extremely emotional because a lot of it was ceremony as well. So a lot of the songs were for uh, funeral ceremonies or for... Kalama ceremonies which are highly spiritual in terms of thanking ancestors and empowering the people in the room by what they're singing. So they were hearing that intoning of spirituality in real time. And was that
1: joyful for them or devastating?
0: Both, both. There were some songs that were deeply upsetting for people to hear and in fact we then had sort of sticky questions come up about why those Things were recorded in the first place, and some of the old ladies were very upset about the fact that those souls, if you like, of their ancestors were literally trapped and sitting on a on a shelf in Canberra. It became a very tangible um, process in terms of, you know, physically returning family members through their voices back to the islands. And one lady heard her father singing. In ceremony in, in 1954, naming her as a baby. That was an amazing experience because Mary Elizabeth, who's an elder now herself, you know, people in the community wondered if it was sort of an apocryphal sort of story that she'd been named Elizabeth after the Queen because her father, he was a culture man and he'd been recently in uh, Brisbane to see the royal visit and he was one of the Aboriginal performers. And so following this tradition of presenting news and presenting current affairs in the Kalama ceremony, he'd then gone back in March of that year and met the newborn that was then presented to be named uh, and to be symbolically presented into the community. And he also gave her the name Elizabeth in honour of his royal visit. And here we were listening to evidence of that, literally this voice of her father naming her.
1: Oh, that's so moving. That's lovely. Yeah, it was. Could you transcribe them, these songs? Did you want to?
0: We've done a lot of transcription and uh, the elders, in fact, were adamant that they wanted to in terms of protecting the language of those old songs because the language in particular of the the, the songs that have been recorded, anything up to the sort of 80s, by way of having been sung by senior men and women at the time, that language is lost now completely. No-one is speaking that language anymore. And in fact, fewer and fewer people are able to sing in it anymore. And so we've done a lot of transcription over the years. And transcription of songs, of course, opens up the curly question of making finite what should not be finite. An oral tradition, songs that should never be repeated word for word. But the process of oftentimes phonetically transcribing these songs has meant that the elders have, with me, created a resource for the next generation of extemporizing singers. So we haven't been writing out exact songs to be passed down. It's if you are a man or woman of Ranku country, for instance, these are the words and the, the epithets and the allusions and the poetic imagery that you can use for your own songs. That's right. That's right. Try to create a resource of that.
1: How did the ladies get to know your mum and dad, Genevieve?
0: Mum and Dad, they're odd people now that I think about it. They they're very into Citroëns and they drove, I don't know if you know the Deux Chevaux, the, the little two. Citroën Deux Chevaux, yes. right, the classic yes. French car. That's I learned yeah. to drive on one of those. Right. They were part of a two CV raid, which and they would drive overland. They would camp. They would, you know, about 50 of these cars would all go cross country. I with. don't
1: think those cars are meant to go cross country. I they're don't really think they not. Are. But no, they're like you know, a Parisian suburb maybe, but uh, cross country, <laughs> what to Central Australia? Really?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, you know, they're very simple cars. So if something goes wrong, it's a bit like a mechanic <laughs> right. set. it's pretty easy to fix it.
1: An elastic band and totally a, and a comb might yes. fix it right. Yes, uh, absolutely. Right. So they so they were so they went up to the the yes, so
0: the, I mean they 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 had been across to visit you know me because I you know I've been there for sort of a few extended periods of time over the years and of course the members of the of the Twe group have been to Sydney a few times and of course they've met my folks when they were in Sydney but. This particular time mum and dad had driven Sydney up through Alice and up, up to Darwin and they came across to the islands and they jumped in the four-wheel drive Troopy with me because I was I was going to the three communities to show, I can't remember what we were working on now. And it was only about three months after that that my dad suddenly died and we were absolutely shocked, um, you know, pleasantly shocked when a group of women who call me sister said they were coming to dad's funeral so they came to sydney and um and they sang at dad's funeral
1: what were they able to do commemoratively at your dad's funeral in sydney
0: they performed the widow song with my mum around the coffin And it was a really interesting sort of bringing together of all the sort of facets of my life, I suppose, with these women and two men came along too who call me sister and I call them brother, which then, of course, means they call dad father. And so they were singing absolutely truthfully as the sons and daughters of a deceased man. And they sang around the coffin and broke all of the sort of stiff upper lip kind of protocols we so often have around funerals because for Tiwi people, funerals and mortuary ceremonies are very cathartic. It's all about letting out your grief and singing it and dancing it. And so...
1: And were you singing with them?
0: Yes, yes, I was singing because I've been... I've, you know, sadly now been to a number of funerals so I knew the song that they were singing so I was singing with them. Was it hard? Emotionally, very hard, absolutely. But strangely, it sort of brought everything together because the Waverley Band was at the funeral. They were all they were all there playing um for Dad. And Mum and Dad both used to say that um music is a universal language. I mean, obviously it's not there. It's not their epithet. Lots of people say that. And in that moment, I thought, wow, it really is. you know, that this song, it was very, moving for my mum to, to ha- who'd been holding it together all day and she was in that moment able to cry and able to dance with these old ladies holding on to her and allowing her to rest on the coffin and sort of be next to dad and not worry about that sort of properness that, that we often have. And then they smoked the old man Eustace and my brother Kapaji smoked the coffin out to the hearse and they...
1: With eucalyptus leaves?
0: Yeah. Um, while the brass band was playing All Sing Matilda, so it was a very interesting Australian moment.
1: <laughs> and then there's another ceremony that happens a year later in Tiwi culture. Tell me about that.
0: The Pokemani ceremony is in Tiwi culture the more important one. So the burial is obviously you know like more more sort of a logistical sort of ceremony. And in Tiwi culture it's a year later basically once all of the seasons have passed again. So you live through all of the seasons through a period of mourning and there are... Without a, the deceased person. Without the, yeah, but without the person who's died. But the, the Tiwi people believe that the person who's, die, who's died doesn't want to leave and they so they'll hang around and they, they will stay with you.
1: And after they die you go, oh, this time of year, last year I was with this person. and
0: exactly. And exactly. they're not here now. Exactly. And so my mum and I were going through that as well and so it sort of... It makes perfect sense. I think that Tiwi mob do this, and they, the other part of Pokemani is that it's all about encouraging the person who's died to move on to the next state of existence, which for Tiwi people is just as important as the living existence, and all of the places and all of the songs and all of the daily activities all go on as normal in the next existence.
1: So there's a year of mourning, and then after that year, you have a, what is it like a second funeral?
0: Yes, it's a, it's a second funeral but it is fundamentally about acknowledging the kinship connections. Uh, at that point you can say the person's name again, you can look at their image again because up until that point you've been avoiding all of those things partly so that the deceased person doesn't stay around. You don't want to talk about them because they won't want to leave. So you don't say their name, you don't look at their image, you don't sing their song. And so the ladies told me you and your mum need to book a plane, you need to come up, we're going to hold ceremony for Dad.
1: And what happens in this ceremony?
0: There's a pole. I mean, the Tiwi, the Tiwi Pukamani poles are quite um, quite well known there. They're unique to Tiwi culture. So it's a big, big painted carved pole that, that they'd made for Dad and they had standing in the middle of the Millimica sand circle. And they'd printed out a, a picture of my dad that was taped to the top There was a cloth, a funeral cloth that normally goes over the coffin, but because Dad hadn't been buried on the islands, they had still got that cloth and it had crocodiles on it because that's my totem. So that means that I inherited it from Dad. So backwards, Dad was crocodile as well. And they had that draped over the pole. They painted Mum up because Mum was widow and as, as widow she is the closest to the dead person and therefore the most in danger, I suppose, of, of being taken. And so all the women who knew they were widow as well because of their kinship connection to me, they all sat with Mum, they painted her up, we painted up as, as Crocodile, and then there are particular dances and particular songs that are sung in a very specific order and, and there were probably 50 people there who all knew who my dad was in relation to their kinship and everyone sang and everyone did their dance.
1: This sounds like really powerful stuff. What effect did it have on you and your mum?
0: It had a um, very, very um, powerful grounding, I suppose, is a good way of putting it. We thought, wow, we are, uh, you know, as you can tell, I can hardly talk about it. Um, it was it was so true and so honest and so 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 right. Um, Mum didn't have any brothers and sisters and I don't have any brothers and sisters, and she said to me, "I now have sisters. I've never had sisters." And and I've I actually, to be honest, I've felt that way too. We really felt like we were part of the family, and I was. I mean honored of course but honored you know I don't want to be sort of disingenuous and say bandy that word around but it was it was an an enormous honor too to have these senior men who don't know my mum very well I mean they'd met her a couple of times but they know me well but it was taken very very seriously this this ceremony that was being held for for my dad and mum was treated very very gently and 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 carefully as as all widows are and then at the end, once all the dances had happened, widow dances last. So, a um, couple of the women I know, who whose relationship to mum therefore was was equal, they danced widow with her. And then the ritual washing happens at the end, and the songs are about the water and the tides and the cleansing and the washing away of the grief. And they uh, they washed all the paint off mum. There's a um, a communal sense of. We are all sharing this grief together, and there's a, there is a lot of crying, and there's a lot of wailing, and there's actually a lot of uh, sung wailing. It's a, the the women in in funeral and in and in ceremony situations are not unlike the Keeners of the sort of Celtic traditions, where they are the women who allow everybody to cry. They they sing particular. They, there are particular words that are called crying words, and they sing particular songs which enable others to cry because they are already and oh. that is part of their role. So like
1: the keening is a song that they can lead everyone in.
0: Exactly, exactly. And every Pukamani ceremony has a designated um amparu who's the who's the widow, whether that's a man or a woman, and they will off around the side and the amparu all the time is sort of circling off to a distance at a distance singing to the spirits to the moppa duty, telling them that he's here in this case my dad telling them that he's here and he'll be with you soon and and it's almost like the amparu and the, and the women when they're singing as the as the keening women if you like they are absorbing everyone's emotional sort of reaction as well so that
1: Absor- holding it perhaps
0: yeah holding it and harnessing it too not not trying to suppress it mm. but allowing it to happen absolutely allowing it to happen. So the women are always central to funerals and to and to Pukamani.
1: You used a lovely phrase early on when you heard the singing and came to understand, get some insight into understanding it in any case. You, you used the phrase deep time and you are also talking about how time's arrow, you know, from then to now and from now to the future or whatever, isn't quite right. It doesn't seem to apply or it doesn't seem to rule over... This kind of music. do That's you reflect right. on that a lot, and and particularly in the in the wake of your dad's funeral and his second funeral, about the idea of people are here, then they're not, <laughs> they're not here, then they're here, then mm. they're not here. I don't know. do you think about that much?
0: I, I do I absolutely do. I mean, it's a really good question because purely sort of musically and musicologically, I've thought about this a lot too. and and when the let's call it Western music is very much linear. There's a start, there's intro or whether we're talking binary structures in um, symphonies or ternary. Sonata form. Yeah, sonata form, all Mm -hmm. that. And there's a coda and there's an end. Mm -hmm. And um, musicians are trained to move from one of those sections to the next and and whether a jazz musician is doing that by ear or whether someone's doing it by reading down the page, we're very much trained to think of music in that way, of, of linearly.
1: It's very pleasing.
0: It is absolutely hear
1: music or read a book or anything like that. But this isn't quite like that, is it?
0: No, I mean the classical, what I call the classical songs, have no beginning and no end either, because there's a there's a phrase. Let's call it a phrase, that can be sung for as many repetitions as either the singer wants, or for as many times as people need to come up and dance. The women often actually talk about uh, ceremony as being a bit like their basket and their weaving. The, the pandanus is being woven round and round and round in difference or in circles, and it's a bit like how long how long is a piece of string. As soon as a thread of pandanus is over, the next one is just wound in, so it never actually runs out, and a different colour will come in a, di- a deeper ochre or a charcoal-y colour or a or bright yellow. And um, one lady was telling me once how that's a little bit like the next dancer is coming into the circle and so it's all part of the whole and when you look at the the emerging sort of coils of the of the baskets that's like the generations of all of the people who are singing that same song and they're all next to each other and they're all entwined within the same whole of song and so at a a sort of macro level (laughs) It's, that's what their concept of time is. So every time I sing my song as a woman of particular country singing about Crocodile, I am here in this same place as all of the female ancestors before me have been singing that same song, which is a slightly different shade, but it's in the same place and it's of the same story. So it creates... There's, there's no moving away into the future from either physically, in fact, or, or spiritually or, or, or musically or, inter- or ancestrally. All of, these, all of these songs continue on as long as people need to dance them on the day and also across a lifetime. So it's, it's all about circles.
1: How has all this changed your life?
0: It's certainly given me a new family, another family, not a new one. I love the one I've got. But it's opened my musical eyes and my sort of different ways of thinking about being a human being. Yeah, it's certainly given me a home away from home, that's for sure.
1: Lovely speaking with you, Genevieve. What an amazing story. Thank you so much.
0: Oh, thank you for having me in
1: Genevieve Campbell's book written with the Tiwi women's singing group is called Merli La, Songs and Stories of the Tiwi Islands abc.net.au slash conversations is our website. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening.
0: You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations.